Have you ever walked through an amusement park house of mirrors? The mirrors cast reflections around the room 25 times in all shapes and sizes. Old Testament prophecy is like a house of mirrors. The pictures that the prophets present are images grouped around theological themes rather than chronological sequences. The Old Testament prophets were not as concerned as we are to figure out the chronological details of prophecy. They wanted to challenge and motivate people to live with the right expectations. When we come to Zechariah 9, we enter the second half of the book. The second half is sufficiently different in style and content from the first half that critics think that it was written by someone else. I'm not going to waste our time defending the authorship of Zechariah. Suffice it to say that the same prophet wrote the second half as wrote the first half. Zechariah most likely wrote the last chapters of this book in his old age, while the first eight chapters were written early in his ministry. This would account for many of the differences. Now, as an old man, Zechariah is gripped by the message that the king is coming. Friends, think of prophetic events as reflections in mirrors that bounce around the room. Each prophecy is a reflection that has similarities to several events in history, but ultimately is fulfilled in the end times. As we look back from our vantage point in history, we can see remarkable examples of these prophecies being fulfilled. But each historical example is a reflection of the final fulfillment. In theological terms, this understanding of prophecy is called generic prophecy, because each prophecy is generic enough to see multiple reference points down through history. Why would God speak generically? Why would God speak this way through the prophets? God speaks through the prophets in generic terms because the generic language gives us an incentive to live for him in any age. The prophets were first preachers. They were exhorting their listeners to follow God. Since we can see similarities or reflections of coming events in any generation, prophecy is always relevant for every generation. That's why I say that prophetic reflections encourage practical expectations. In Zechariah 9, we see three reflections of Messiah which encourage practical living today. The first reflection is the reflection of Messiah as defender, Zechariah 9, verses 1 through 8. Christ is our Messiah, as he is the Messiah of Israel. He defends his people against those who attack them by destroying his enemies in verses 1 through 7 of Zechariah 9. The burden of the Lord, the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, 
with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord, and Hamath also which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will remove their blood from their mouth, and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God, and be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them any more, for now I have seen with my eyes. The remarkable thing about these verses is that they provide such an accurate prediction of Alexander the Great's conquest of the eastern Mediterranean world. Around 150 years after Zechariah lived, Alexander the Great took over from his father Philip of Macedon and proceeded to sweep through the coastlands, conquering the entire Persian Empire. He completely routed the Persian king Darius in 333 BC at the Battle of Issus and then swept southward along the coast. Notice that verse 1 tells us that the eyes of men are toward the Lord. And verse 4 tells us that the Lord will dispossess Tyre. Yet we know that is exactly what was done by Alexander the Great. The world watched Alexander, but never realized that they were really watching the Lord at work. The Lord was using Alexander to do God's work of judgment. You see, human leaders are merely instruments in the hands of God to perform his will. Now, if you look at a map, you will see the progression of this conquest runs from north to south. These city-states of the ancient world were the traditional enemies of Israel. God was systematically destroying the enemies of Israel as he defended his people. The Arameans, in verses 1 and 2, were the ancient forerunners of the modern-day Syrians. Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath were all cities in this territory just north of Palestine. These were the first countries to be conquered by Alexander after defeating Darius the Persian king. Moving southward along the coast, we arrive at the Phoenician strongholds of Tyre and Sidon in modern-day Lebanon in verses 2 through 4. The cities of Tyre and Sidon were very wealthy and very proud 
in ancient times. Notice that verse 2 says that they thought they were very wise. They were arrogant in their wisdom. The city of Tyre had moved from its location on the coast to an island half a mile off the shoreline. The entire island was surrounded by a double wall, 150 feet high. That double wall was filled with 25 feet of earth. She was an impregnable city and prided herself on her security. Tyre had never been conquered before. The Assyrians had besieged her for five years before giving up. The Babylonians had besieged Tyre for 13 years before giving up. 13 years they laid siege to Tyre and gave up. Yet Alexander the Great conquered Tyre in seven months. Don't you think that the hand of God had something to do with that victory? Alexander borrowed a great navy from the surrounding countries to blockade the island. He built a giant causeway from the ruins of the old city out to the island. The causeway can still be seen today. So this proud city was humbled forever. God's lesson is that you can never be safe from the wrath of God. If God wants to get you, he will get you. If God wants to bring you down, he will bring you down. Next on the list, moving south, were the Philistines in verses 5 through 7. Four of the five great Philistine cities are conquered in quick succession by Alexander the Great. The only one not mentioned is Gath, and it was probably already of minor importance by that time. By the way, the name Palestine comes from the word Philistine. The Philistines were a very proud and wicked people. Their idolatrous practices will be done away. But some would actually believe and follow God, according to verse 7. Finally, we arrive in verse 8 at Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye. God used Alexander to judge the enemies of Israel by defending his people in verse 8. The army and the man who passes by here must be the Greeks and Alexander the Great, because he never conquers Jerusalem. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us a remarkable story about this event. Now, Josephus is known to embellish the facts, so we must take his account with a grain of salt, but he is still one of our best sources for our history of this period. According to Josephus, Alexander asked the Jews to contribute money to his campaign against Tyre. Jadus, the Jewish high priest at the time, refused to do so, and Alexander promised to level the city when he came. As Alexander was approaching the city of Jerusalem with his armies, Jadus had a vision from the Lord telling him what to do. The next day, all of the people of Jerusalem dressed in white garments and led by the priests in their ceremonial robes with the high priest in his robe of hyacinth blue, 
approached Alexander on the plain overlooking the city. Alexander dismounted from his horse and bowed before the high priest, much to the amazement of his own generals. Parmenion, one of his generals, asked him why he did this, since he had never done such a thing before, in any of his battles. He supposedly told Parmenion that he had seen a vision from God before he ever started his conquests of Greece. God had appeared to him and promised that he would be master of all Asia because God would lead his armies. Alexander had not known who this God was until he saw the high priest approaching him. The Jewish high priest wore the identical clothing that Alexander had seen in his vision of God way back before his conquests even began. However, true or not, we know that Alexander never conquered Jerusalem and the city enjoyed special privileges during his brief reign. He passed by and returned. The end of verse 8 says, And no oppressor will pass over them any more, for now I have seen with my eyes. These words illustrate what I mean by reflections of Messiah. Obviously, this has never literally been true of Israel. She was later conquered by the Romans and has endured Gentile oppression off and on ever since. So the events that took place in Alexander's day are pictures of what will later take place when God defends his people at Christ's return to set up his earthly kingdom. Our hope is in Christ, and our expectation is that he will right all wrongs when he returns for us. Our expectation that Christ is coming back encourages us, no matter what we face today. We have seen the reflection of Messiah as our defender. Now we see the reflection of Messiah as a ruler in verses 9 and 10. The Israelites are commanded to rejoice and shout in triumph. Why? Well, there are two reasons given in these verses, in verses 9 and 10. They are to shout and rejoice, reason number one, because the king is coming, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The coming of our king is the first reason for our joy as believers. And our king is described in four ways in this verse. First, he is righteous. Our king will be just the prophet writes. The word could refer to his own personal justice or righteousness. However, in this context, most likely refers to his justice, not his justness. The king will rule righteously. He brings justice to an unjust world. Second, he possesses salvation. 
Most translations translate the Hebrew phrase as having salvation rather than as saving people. The point is that he possesses salvation. He has salvation. He is endowed with salvation. Salvation is his to give, and he offers it to the nation of Israel in this context, and to all of us in Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel rejected the offer of salvation in the first century when they rejected Christ. The question is, what will you do, my friends, with his offer of salvation? Third, he is humble. Humility is an attribute in direct contrast to most ancient kings, including the arrogant Alexander the Great. Most kings come with all the trappings of royalty. Most of our political leaders today want the glorious celebrations and the military parades to honor them. They want the monuments set up in their name. Not this king. The messianic king will come in humility. And fourth, he is peaceful. The point of riding on a donkey is one of peace as well as humility. The Messianic king will not come riding on a great war horse like Alexander the Great. The Messianic king comes riding on a donkey, the symbol of peace and humility. Zechariah 9.9 is one of the most familiar Messianic prophecies in the, in the whole Bible. The prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem less than a week before he was crucified. We call it Palm Sunday. Matthew, in Matthew 21, quoted Zechariah 9.9 as he described that first Palm Sunday. The crowds of people cut down branches and spread them on the road. They shouted, Hosanna! is the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. No other king in all of human history has so wonderfully fulfilled this great prophecy from Zechariah 9. The Israelites are to rejoice because the king is coming, and they are to rejoice because the kingdom is coming, verse 10. The prophet continues, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Messianic kingdom will be a kingdom of global peace, unlike any other kingdom before it. Alexander's kingdom was founded on bloodshed, military conquest. But Christ's kingdom will be founded on peace because he will be sovereign over the whole world. The chariot, the horse, and the bow represent the arsenal of any army in the ancient world. Jesus Christ will do away with these implements of war in his kingdom of peace. The Prince of Peace will reign supreme, and there will be no need for the instruments of war anymore. Until the king comes in his kingdom, 
until Christ returns to establish his kingdom, there will never be lasting peace in this world. Christ's kingdom is the kingdom of peace. Is it any wonder then that the Jews in the first century expected their Messiah to overthrow the Romans? They had read Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. If verse 9 was fulfilled at the first coming, then why not verse 10? Well, the reason is that Jesus came, all right, but he came offering his kingdom on the condition of repentance from sin. He came humbly and meekly, riding on a donkey, not a war horse. The kingdom was there for them if they would accept the king and the spiritual basis for the kingdom. The reason that verse 10 has not yet been fulfilled is that the Jews rejected their king and his salvation, so they could not enjoy the blessings of that kingdom. They got the message of deliverance, but never grasped the message of repentance. We might say that the entire church age, the times we live in today, the church age, takes place between verses 9 and 10. Paul makes this very argument in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. The hardness of the hearts of Israel Paul says, was so that the grace of God would come to the Gentiles in God's wonderful plan. We are grafted into the kingdom through salvation in Christ. Now there is a small church located halfway down the western slope of the Mount of Olives. It is called Dominus Flevit and it's built in the shape of a teardrop. Dominus Flevit is Latin for the Lord wept. I remember standing there looking across at the Temple Mount, looking across at the city of Jerusalem, because you have a spectacular view of Jerusalem and the Temple from that location. I remember standing there looking across and thinking of Jesus. What was going through his mind that first Palm Sunday as he wept over the city of Jerusalem even as the crowds were ready to crown him as their king? The crowds were cheering, but Jesus wept at his triumphal entry. Why? Why at the crowning point of his ministry does Jesus weep over the city of Jerusalem? Why at the most popular moment of his life is he crying over the city of Jerusalem? The city is about to enter to Hosanna, the son of David. Well, it's because he knew. He knew the price they would pay for their rejection of the king. The awful, awful price of a hard heart is the judgment of God. The offer of the king was before them as Jesus entered the city, and they rejected him because he didn't fit their mold. He wasn't going to give them what they wanted. So less than a week later, instead of Hosanna, they shouted, Crucify him! 
Instead of acknowledging him as their king, they rejected him as their savior. He didn't fit their mold. He wasn't giving them what they wanted. How about you? Have you rejected Jesus Christ because he didn't fit your mold? He didn't do what you wanted him to do? Please, please don't delay. Soften your heart and turn to him. You never know how long you have. Jesus weeps for you, as he did for Israel. If your heart is hardened by sin, his tears are shed to melt your hard heart. We come now to the third reflection of Messiah. It is the reflection of Messiah as deliverer in verses 11 through 13. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you, for I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim, and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. Israel will again be victorious over her enemies when she returns in repentance to her God. In verse 12, we have that great Hebrew word for repentance, the word to turn or return. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Repentance is that turning point in life. It is a turning from sin and rebellion and a returning to the grace of God. The basis for God's restoration of his people is the blood of my covenant, God says in verse 11. What a marvelous expression. It is because of the blood of God's covenant with his people that he will make a way for them to return to him and be restored to him. The expression looks back to the Mosaic Covenant and the sacrifices which established that blood covenant with his people. Exodus chapter 24 verse 8 says, So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the old covenant God made with Israel looks forward to the blood of the new covenant God makes with Jews and Gentiles. The blood of Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for all ages, past and future. He is the only basis for salvation. The only way to a right relationship with God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. When we repent of our sins, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. The Israelite in Zechariah's day was a prisoner of hope. 
because the blood of the old covenant promised him restoration when he returned to God and accepted his provision for him. That was their hope. They were imprisoned in the stronghold of hope, the hope and expectation of Jesus Christ. I believe that these verses have a wonderful, literal, historical fulfillment for the nation of Israel. Zechariah identifies when they are restored from the prisoner's pit. They are restored when God raises them up to fight the sons of Greece. Well, this only took place one time in history. Israel became the warrior's sword, as Zechariah said, the warrior's sword against Greece during the days of the Maccabean Revolt in the 2nd century BC. Alexander the Great died in 323 BC, and his empire was divided into four parts, just as the prophet Daniel had foretold in Daniel 8. Israel fell under the ruthless rule of the Seleucid Empire. The climax came in the days of Antiochus IV, better known as Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled from 175 to 163 BC. Antiochus tried to abolish the Sabbath and the daily sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. The worst event took place in December of 167 BC, when he set up a pagan altar to Zeus in the temple and offered pig's flesh on the altar. This was likely the abomination of desolation predicted by Daniel in Daniel 11.31. But God stirred up some godly men in the little town of Modin, just outside of Jerusalem. A Syrian officer tried to make the people offer pagan sacrifices on the altar. When one Jew came forward to offer the sacrifice, a local priest by the name of Mattathias stepped forward and killed the Jew and the Syrian officer rather than corrupt the blood of the covenant. And Mattathias fled with his five sons into the wilderness and they gathered a ragtag army to fight the Greeks. A guerrilla war broke out against the Seleucid Empire, and the military leadership fell on one son named Judas Maccabeus, whose name meant the Hammer. Judas the Hammer won some great military victories as the sword of the Lord. He threw off the yoke of Greek oppression. The Jews lived under their own rule by a succession of Maccabees until the Romans took over in 63 BC. Zechariah predicted all of this in his reflection of Messiah as deliverer. God was giving his people a little foretaste of the victory they could enjoy in their Messiah if they would repent and accept the blood of the new covenant. It's a reflection of the great victories that Messiah will win when he sets up his kingdom on earth. And Zechariah will speak of these eschatological victories, these future victories in detail 
later in this book. My friends, God is a God of encouragement. All three of these reflections predict events that have now been fulfilled historically, yet each one points forward like the reflections in the house of mirrors to events which will happen yet in the future. The point is that prophetic reflections encourage practical expectations. It's what makes us prisoners of hope. Hope in those future expectations has a practical dimension in our lives today. We must live in the present, but prophecy encourages us by giving us a little foretaste, picture, glimpse, glimmer of the future. If I might change the metaphor, the prophets functioned like the wide-angle lens on a camera, not the zoom lens. We treat prophecy like a zoom lens, focusing on each little detail rather than seeing the great panorama which the prophets envisioned. God is at work in history. Zechariah gives us a sweeping panorama of Messiah's majesty. Now, it's not wrong, my friends, to try and stitch together the pictures of prophecy into a chronological sequence. But we need to see the panorama of God's plan to encourage us in times like these. In every generation, we can see the correspondence of circumstances to the possible return of the Lord. Every generation can look at events and wonder, wonder, is his return near? Our hope of his return then motivates us to be faithful in our lives now, in our current circumstances. We are prisoners of hope because of the blood of Christ's covenant. We live now in the hope of eternity. 